And a very, very pleasant good day to each and every one of you. I'm Brother James, and I greet you once again. In the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And it's time to uh, do what God so often calls upon us to do. That is to deal with yet another doctrinal misunderstanding that has greatly hindered the work and effectiveness of the body of Christ. You know, the last thing we need in this day and age, the last thing we need in this day and age, is for one more Christian to say, well, I just believe it. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And then some go so far as to say, God said it, and that settles it. And you know, those are, those are good little phrases and catchwords. But truth of the matter is, so many of God's people don't have any idea what God said. And they decide what they believe based upon a preacher they like, or a TV or radio program that they uh, tune into, or a sermon that they heard one time that they slept through half of it. And they spend their entire lives basing their beliefs on nothing substantial at all. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you know nothing else about our radio broadcast, you know whether you like the tone of our voice, whether you agree with every uh, position that we set forth, you know one thing, and you won't deny this, you can't deny this, because what I'm about to say is the absolute truth, whether you, whether you like it or not, it's the truth. You know that we go to great lengths to show you from the Bible just exactly why we believe what we believe. Now, as I say, that may not convince you. You may not agree with us once we are finished, but you know that uh, you never hear Brother James come on this radio station and say, I believe, and leave it at that. You never hear me come on this radio station and say, you should believe, and leave it at that. We always take the time to show you why we believe what we believe from the pages of the Holy Bible, line upon line, precept upon precept, verse after verse in its context. God helping us, God giving us grace, we're going to continue to do that right up until the time that Jesus comes again. Now we're going to begin on the broadcast today a series of messages. I don't know how many programs it will take to get through this. Maybe two, maybe three. Don't know, sometimes these things run out. You start out intending to do two programs and it runs into eight. I have no idea. But we are going to discuss the tribulation, the tribulation in relation to the church. The tribulation in relation to the church. Now, in order to have a clear grasp of the important subjects which are the theme of this study, it is of the first very necessity that one understand the differences between Israel and the church of God. That's where all the misunderstanding comes in concerning these matters. They arise almost entirely, I'm tempted to say entirely, from a failure to recognize the distinctive positions, periods of time, and destinies of Israel on the one hand and of the church on the other. So, we're going to first of all look at the sharp contrasts existing between Israel, God's earthly people, and the church, God's heavenly people. Now Israel was chosen of God to be his people, a nation set apart from all other nations to be God's witnesses upon the earth. 
Israel became a nation uh, 1,650 years before Christ. The church, however, was not formed until after the death of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 16, 18, On this rock I will build my church. It was therefore obviously not yet in existence at that moment, but was formed on the day of Pentecost, uh, when the Holy Spirit came down to abide in God's redeemed ones, when on that day all believers were united by the Spirit into one body, the church or assembly. And our Lord bade his disciples in Acts chapter number 1 to tarry at Jerusalem, where they were to be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Referring to this event, the Apostle Paul assures us in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 that by one Spirit are we all baptized in the one body. The church then had its inception following the resurrection of Jesus Christ and did not exist, in spite of what the commentators say, did not exist, in spite of what those who can't understand their Bible would teach, did not exist prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the church has been here on the earth ever since. Israel, however, was one nation, separated from all other nations, composed of Jews only, except such who from among the Gentiles adopted their religion, manner of life, and joined them thus. But the church is composed of individuals gathered out of all nations, including Jews and Gentiles, but of course composed predominantly of Gentile believers. Christ reconciled all believers into one body through his death upon the cross. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16. Israel, in her religious worship, included every member of the nation, regardless of whether these were truly redeemed to God or not. Believers and unbelievers alike united in religious worship and ritual. But the church is made up of true believers in Christ only. The church takes in only such as are sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. That's 1 Corinthians 1, 2. There's yet another distinction. Israel had a God-given religious system. In fact, it's the only religion that God ever gave to any people. It was predominantly an outward, formal, ritualistic setup where priesthood and ceremony ruled. The church's worship, on the other hand, is altogether spiritual. The church has no official place of worship. The true church has no headquarters on earth, not in Nashville, not in Rome. No ritual, no priesthood, no clerisy marks it. Where such are introduced, such as the clergy and laity, a particular priest class, a ritualistic service, a headquarters of denominational structure, where these things are introduced, they are man-invented and man-made. They are not of God. The church's sphere is wholly in the spiritual realm, where Christ, who is the substance, replaces the shadow of ceremonialism.
Another distinction is that Israel was God's earthly people during their Old Testament history and shall yet be so in the days of he ahead and, and they shall dwell on earth as his redeemed people. Their earthly character and destiny is mentioned hundreds of times in scriptures. Why, Psalm 37 alone states five times over that they shall inherit the earth. But the church is a heavenly body. She is blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse uh, 3. And her home is in heaven, where she has an inheritance laid up for her. That's 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. In the Bible, Israel is called the bride of Jehovah. In Isaiah 62, 5, the Lord says that as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. But Israel is not a virgin bride. On the contrary, the Lord speaks of that nation under various figures, such as her having been divorced, Isaiah 50, verse 1, or as a widow, Isaiah 54, 4. God speaks of that nation as if he had forsaken her, Isaiah 54, 6, as a wife God had married when she was in her youth. But in the glorious day that awaits Israel, God will remarry her. Isaiah 54, 5 reads, For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. However, in the, in the sharpest contrast, the church is the virgin bride of Christ. Israel was once God's people, but turned from him and crucified her Lord and hence has been cast off as his people these many centuries. But the church has never yet been united to Christ, not in the marital sense, so she is his virgin bride. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11:2, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now surely the above distinctions, those things that we have discussed, in the first few moments of this study, the distinctions between Israel and the church, and there are many more that we could give, but these are so clear-cut that no one can fail to see them. Israel occupied the center of the stage in the Old Testament, while the church fills the picture in the New Testament. The church is not a sort of uh, glorified Israel, but her direct contrast. Israel, because of sin and failure, and perhaps preeminently so because of the rejection and crucifixion of her Messiah, her king, Israel has been disowned as a people for the time being. And during the interval, God, in his infinite wisdom and love, is gathering out of this world a people redeemed by Christ's precious blood called his body, the church, of which Christ is the head. Now when that church is complete and has been taken home to heaven, God will once more take up his earthly people Israel, a remnant of which shall be saved and brought alive through the terrible time of the great tribulation that awaits them, and, and they shall be God's people, his bride, here upon the earth. That is her future, which shall be brought to this happy conclusion at the return of Christ, known as his appearing. Now the church's future is quite distinct. It's the glory above. Her destiny also depends upon the return of Christ. The coming for the church is 
spoken of in Scripture as the blessed hope. Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. Though we often speak of it as the rapture and shall use either one or the other uh, terms throughout our study, the coming of Christ to Israel, when also he will judge the world for its wickedness, is known as his appearing or his revelation. That's in Titus 2.13 and 1 Peter 1.13. We read those terms. Now, as Israel, her origin, her character, her destiny, etc., is so clearly different from the church and her hope, we may expect to find a corresponding difference between the coming of Christ for his church and his coming to Israel, a difference between the rapture and the appearing. Now, let's note a few of these. In fact, let's note, well, 12 would be a good number, wouldn't it? Let's note 12 of these differences. Number one, at the Blessed Hope, the Lord Jesus comes for his saints, John 14, 3. At his appearing, he comes with his saints, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 4. Number two, the Blessed Hope is a secret coming, as far as Scripture indicates, no mention of anyone seeing it is given. But his appearing is public, for every eye shall see him. Revelation 1, 7. Number three. At the blessed hope, the believers will meet their Lord in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. At his appearing, Christ will come down to the earth. Zechariah 14, 4. Number four. At the blessed hope, the Lord comes himself. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 But at his appearing, he gathers Israel by means of angels. Matthew 24, verse 31. Fifthly, no mention is made of signs at the coming of Christ for his church. But many signs accompany his public coming at his appearing. See Luke 21.11, Luke 20. Uh, 5 through 27, or uh, Matthew 25 through 27, I should say. Number six, at the blessed hope, there will be a, re a resurrection of all the dead in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 23, at his appearing, there is not a hint of resurrection. Number seven, the blessed hope holds out a marvelous transformation of the bodies of believers. For we shall be changed into his likeness and receive a glorious body like his. This we learn in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. This is something altogether new, never even hinted at in the Old Testament scriptures. But at his appearing, there is no suggestion of any physical changes, simply because there will not be any. Of course, I mean physical changes in the human body, for creation itself shall have a marvelous change for the better, but, but the individuals will not. Israel shall at that time inhabit this earth under the rulership of Jesus Christ, and earthly physical conditions will continue to exist, though a good deal of the curse now oppressing humanity shall be lifted. Number eight. The Blessed Hope pictures Christ's coming under the figure of the rising of the morning star, Revelation 22:16, His appearing is recorded as the rising of the sun, Malachi chapter 4, 
verse 6. Ninthly, the blessed hope is set before the believer as a real source of comfort. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, but what comfort could there possibly be if one would have to experience that fearful deluge of woe called the Great Tribulation? On the contrary, Christ's appearing is often presented as a time of the outpouring of the wrath of God. Number 10. At the Blessed Hope, Christ delivers us from wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 At His appearing, He delivers the wrath. Revelation 19, verse 15. Number 11. At the rapture, our Lord descends from heaven with a shout. And we are caught up to meet Him in the air. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. At His appearing... He is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. No angels are mentioned at the rapture, but at his appearing he is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 and 8. And then number 12, at the blessed hope Christ takes his saints out and thus leaves the sinners here. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17, Revelation 20, verse 5. Now, in that Revelation 20, verse 5 passage, we read that the rest of the dead do not live again till the thousand years are fulfilled. Revelation 20 and verse 5. But at his appearing, the reverse takes place. For then our Lord will take sinners out of the earth and leave saints here. Matthew 13, 41 through 43. Now, It'll be seen from the above statements and the above contrasts that Christ coming for his church and his subsequent appearing in judgment are startlingly different. I realize there are men that would come on this radio station and tell you that there is no such thing as a pre-tribulational catching away of the body of Christ, and all that is is a display of their biblical ignorance. Yet that is merely a testimony to the shallow uh, nature of their Bible study and their lack of understanding of the Word of God. The blessed hope is the bright prospect awaiting the church. The appearing of Jesus Christ threatens this wicked world while at the same time bringing deliverance to God's earthly people, Israel. Now we must note, we must note that Christ's appearing is often brought before the believers of this age because at that appearing we shall, as it were, come into our own, even as our blessed Lord himself will. At his appearing he should be glorified in his saints and be admired in all that believe. At 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, that day will be the manifestation of the sons of God. Romans eight nineteen. Because, you, you see, in that day, Christ will finally be seen in all his majesty and glory by the whole world. In that day, all knees shall bow to him as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we, those his blood-washed saints, we shall share the honors of that day as we appear by his side as the queen, if you will, by her king, the bride with her bridegroom. That day of his appearing shall reveal to wandering worlds what the matchless grace of God has done for us and to us. Hence, 
It is a day of joy and triumph for the church, for Christ and his bride. Now, the thing to note is that that day is never connected in Scripture with Christ's coming for us, but always his coming with us. He will come for us, his bride, previous to the glorious day of his appearing. And that previous coming is the blessed hope of the church. Now, an argument could be made and has been made by many that the Greek word parousia, P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A, meaning coming, is used both of the blessed hope and the appearing. And so running to the Greek, as always, to try and prove something that the English doesn't prove, running to the Greek, which is always the resort of a man who finds that the Bible won't support his theory, these men say that the, wor the same word, meaning coming, is used uh, in both cases, therefore they are the same, but the word has to be used in both places because both are comings. The word appearing in Revelation is never used to describe the rapture. It's a distinct and separate event from the blessed hope, but it is a coming. There's a coming of Christ for his church, and there's a coming of Christ with his church. And the fact that you can find a Greek manuscript somewhere that uses coming in both cases means absolutely nothing. Except that you're desperate to cling to a, an unscriptural position. Now, if we keep in mind that Israel's position and destiny are entirely distinct from those of the church, and that the two comings are two entirely different events, it will become clear that Christ could not possibly come to Israel to reign over them until after the church has been removed from this world. I believe the scripture clearly teaches just that very thing. And I'm going to give you a number of proofs from the word of God that establish that truth. First of all, the church will not be on earth during the tribulation because the tribulation is only applied in Scripture to Israel and the world, never in connection with the church, except to say that the church will not be on earth at that time. Now, we read of this tribulation, this great tribulation, in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And if you read carefully in Deuteronomy 4, you will notice this chapter is unmistakably addressed to the nation of Israel. These, this is the nation been redeemed out of Egypt. They've been wandering through the wilderness. They're ready now, just about ready to enter the promised land. And you couldn't, you couldn't make Deuteronomy chapter 4 apply to the New Testament church unless you were just a, a gross deceiver. There isn't any possible way you could do it. Deuteronomy 4, verse 1, Now therefore hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you for to do them, that ye may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers giveth you. Now this is clearly and plainly addressed to the nation of Israel, this entire chapter. 
And so we read in verse number 30, When thou art in tribulation, and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days, if thou turn to the Lord thy God, and shalt be obedient unto his voice, for the Lord thy God is a merciful God, he will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he sware unto them. Now, the obvious context of the passage reveals that the great tribulation in the latter days is to come upon not the church, not the New Testament body of believers. We don't follow the faith of our fathers. We put faith in the Father. We don't follow Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the law, and the Ten Commandments. We follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So this great tribulation, this tribulation in the context, first time it shows up here in Deuteronomy chapter number 4, is clearly God's dealings with the nation of Israel. Matter of fact, if you turn right quickly to Romans chapter 11, you'll find that because of God's covenant with their fathers, the one mentioned in Deuteronomy 4.31, Israel shall be saved. There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, Jesus of course, and Deuteronomy 4 plainly states that Israel in the future shall be delivered out of the great tribulation and shall be saved and blessed. Let's read these verses as we close out our program today. Romans 11 verse 27. For this is my covenant unto them. Who? Verse 26. So all Israel shall be saved. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. Yes, my friend, there's coming a time of great tribulation on the earth upon God's covenant people, the nation of Israel. God's already saved and redeemed people, the New Testament church, bless God, will depart and meet Christ in the air before this dreadful time of judgment falls. All right, that's all the time we've got on the program today. Much, much, much left to be said in this study on the tribulation in relation to the church. God willing, we'll take up right here next time. This is the Preaching of the Cross radio broadcast. I'm Brother James. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you, and good day. Well, all right, it's nice to have you along for another episode of the Preaching of the Cross radio broadcast. I'm Brother James, and I greet you as always. In the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. We began a study on the last broadcast, which was intended, uh, as always, to be a help and a blessing to everyone who sincerely desires a knowledge of the truth of the Word of God. We, we deal often on this broadcast, I'm sure you're aware of that by now, we deal often on this broadcast with subjects that we know are going to be uh, somewhat controversial. We deal often with subjects that we know are going to be met with a great bit of disagreement. And we don't do that because we like to fight. We don't do it because we like to quarrel and argue. Matter of fact, we, we never do. We get letters, you'd be surprised at how frequently we receive letters from people who want to carry on a a running debate or running argument with us about something that we preach or teach on this radio broadcast and 
And we just don't do it. We simply send a note back to those uh, individuals and uh, tell them we'll pray for them, ask them to pray for us, and uh, leave it at that. It's not our calling. We don't have time. I don't have the time to fight and quarrel and argue and debate with, with anyone. Really, I don't. God's uh, given me so many... Uh, unsaved people to try and reach with the gospel. So many Christians that genuinely want to know the truth, uh, not only locally but around the world, that I don't have any time to waste fighting and arguing. Now, I used to. used to have more time to know what to do with, and so I wasted it in debates and quarreling and so forth. But uh, don't do that anymore. Don't have any time for it. And so when we present a subject of some controversy, it is not to stir up debate. It is to instruct those that genuinely and sincerely desire a knowledge of the truth of the Word of God. Now, we began on the broadcast last time a study entitled The Tribulation, The Great Tribulation, in relation to the church. We spent a great deal of time establishing the, the truth that the biggest problem facing the Bible teacher in this day and age is convincing and teaching an individual from the Word of God the definite distinction between the Old Testament nation of Israel and the New Testament church. We dealt with that in some detail on the last broadcast. We've got to keep in mind that Israel's position and destiny are entirely distinct from those of the church, and that the two comings, the second coming of Jesus Christ to this earth to establish a uh, kingdom, and the second co and the uh, coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the air to receive his church are entirely different events. And if that understanding is reached, it will become clear that Christ could not possibly come to Israel to reign over them until after the church has been removed from the world. We cited, first of all, in support of this, Deuteronomy chapter 4, and then Romans chapter 11, and we come at this time to, um, well, let's, let's see, let's look in um, Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30, that'd be a good uh, place to start on the broadcast today. Jeremiah chapter 30, and we'll begin reading verse number 4. We are establishing that the tribulation is only applied in Scripture to Israel, never to the church. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 4. And these are the words that the Lord spake concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus saith the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask ye now, and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness? Alas! For that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass on that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck, and will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. Therefore fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith the Lord. Neither be dismayed, O Israel, 
For lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity, and Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. Now, it couldn't be, it couldn't be any plainer than that. The great tribulation is called Jacob's trouble. The entire passage is addressed to Israel and Judah, and it speaks of Israel's return to their own land. Again, Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20, and we'll begin at verse number 33. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out will I rule over you, and I will bring you out from the people and gather you out of all the countries wherein ye are scattered, with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people. There will I plead with you face to face, like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So will I plead with you, saith the Lord God. And I will cause you to pass under the rod. And I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me. I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, that they shall not enter into the land of Israel, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Now, this whole passage is also addressed to Israel. The tenth verse of the chapter established that clearly and plainly. These are the people that were caused by God to come forth out of Egypt. And it's a very full statement of Israel's future regathering to their own land, of their punishment at the hand of the Lord, which will take place during the Great Tribulation, of the judgment and execution of the apostates among them, and of their reestablishment in the land. How about another one? Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. And verse number 1. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even at that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. Here again, the great tribulation is in view. And it refers, as Daniel was told, to thy people Israel. In Matthew 24, 21, our Lord, referring to this great tribulation, quotes Daniel's words in saying that this tribulation is such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor ever shall be, identifying it with Daniel's description here. Thus here also the great tribulation concerns Israel, not the church. Now this is fully substantiated in the New Testament. The tribulation is not once found in the Christian epistles, but is found five times elsewhere. Twice in Matthew, twice in Mark, where in chapter 13, verse 19, it's referred to as affliction, and once in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 14, when referring to the special period known as the tribulation. Now Matthew's record of the gospel as careful students of the Bible all realize, is written with Israel in view, not the church. And we read in Matthew chapter 24, I'll read you just a few verses from that chapter, starting at verse 15. 
When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Verse 21. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Now we read here that when the abomination of desolation is set up, then the great tribulation will burst loose. Now, this passage is quoted from Daniel 12:11. We already saw in Daniel 12 that God was speaking to Israel. Hence, the same is true here in Matthew's gospel. For this, this tribulation will rage centrally in its main fury in the land of Palestine, from whence the Jews are urged to flee in the 16th verse of Matthew 24, which we just read. Mark presents the same truth, exactly the same truth, in Mark chapter 13, and we'll read verses 14 through 20. Mark 13, beginning at verse 14, But when ye shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand, then let them which be, or, or that be in Judea flee to the mountains, and let him that is on the housetop not go down into the house, neither enter therein to take anything out of his house. Let him that is in the field not turn back again for to take up his garment. But woe to them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. And pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, for in those days shall be affliction such as was not from the beginning of the creation which God created, unto this time neither shall be. And except the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened the days. Now the thing to be carefully observed is that in none of these passages, nor in their context, is there the slightest reference to the church. Now that alone ought to be sufficient proof that the church will not be affected by the great tribulation. Now the greatest support in the Bible for this fact that this great tribulation has to do with the nation of Israel is the the fact of Daniel's 70th week. A study of Daniel 9, 24 to 27 will convince the honest student of the Word of God that the church cannot be on earth during the great tribulation. In fact, I believe it's right to say that it is impossible to have a clear understanding of prophecy, and especially of the truths unveiled in the book of Revelation, except in light of Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27. I don't think that's a, an overstatement at all. So uh, let's look at these verses, and then we'll discuss them together. Daniel 9, beginning at verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince, unto the Messiah the Prince, 
shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now in this remarkable passage of the Word of God, Daniel was given information regarding the future of his own nation for 490 eventful years. Notice verse 24, thy people. That couldn't be any clearer. That's the Jews. Daniel was a Jew, a Hebrew. And upon thy holy city, that's got to be Jerusalem. Now each week in these verses represents seven years. As history is since established, for from the time of Cyrus, the time Cyrus gave the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem, under the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, spoken of in Daniel 9.26, the cutting off of the Messiah was 483 years. Exactly. Couldn't be coincidence. Couldn't be accidental. That's the hand of God guiding the affairs of this world. This is left one week, seven years, yet unaccounted for. That final week of seven years is therefore still future. God's word is never broken. His promises are never uh, unfulfilled. The prophecies set forth in the word of God always come to pass exactly as they are written. And so we are awaiting the fulfillment of the 70th week of this prophecy from Daniel chapter 9. We're not left in the dark as to why this is so. For Daniel 9.26 we read... Uh, stated that after the death of Christ, the city, Jerusalem, and the sanctuary, the temple in Jerusalem, were destroyed. Now this took place, as we know, in A.D. 70 under Titus. Israel was cast out of her land, becoming a fugitive on the face of the earth, and because of their rejection of Christ, God ceased to acknowledge Israel as his people. And their history as a nation ended finally at the cross. During the interval, as the New Testament shows, the church is being gathered out from among the nations, the nations of the world, composed of those truly redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. We're told in Romans chapter 11, verse 11, that through their fall, that's the Jews, is salvation come to the Gentiles. But Romans 11 further teaches, as we saw in the last broadcast, that eventually all Israel shall be saved, they'll be taken up again. Now their future is given in Daniel 9, verse 27. It is then that the final seven years will unfold. That this is so evident from verse 27 uh, can't, can't be denied. In the midst of the last seven years... 
the abomination of desolation that we read about in Matthew, read about in Mark, that's mentioned in the book of Revelation, this abomination of desolation is, is reared up, it's set up. And those passages that we read in Matthew and Mark apply this period to Israel, to their history, just before the return of Jesus Christ the reign. Here then is convincing evidence that this great tribulation could not possibly commence until after the church's history on earth is complete, until after the rapture of the church. Now it's often been said, and, and rightly so, that the prophetic clock stopped at the crucifixion of Christ when Messiah was cut off. And the prophetic clock will not start to tick again until the church is caught up to glory. Now it's worth noticing as well that the whole of these final seven years is included here. Not merely as some teach, only the last three and a half years known as the Great Tribulation. Now, let me just give you a word that will help you to understand some things. I'll give you a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, if you want one. If you want to put it in those terms. Do you know why men are, are beginning to teach that the church is going to go through the, the tribulation? Do you know why? Because the gas prices and the grocery prices are going up in America. Because America is losing many of her freedoms. And these Laodicean, soft, air-conditioned, never preach on the street, never deal with lost people, evangelists who never evangelize, soul winners who never truly win anybody to Jesus Christ but just get them in the mouth of sinner's prayer, this modern generation of Americans that can't stand the heat, can't stand the cold, can't stand to miss a meal, can't stand to go a month without a new dress, this, this crowd of Americans has convinced themselves that Jesus Christ has to come for his church before things get tough in America. Well, now that things look like they might begin to get tough in America, they haven't. We've got it made. They're still getting on boats in Haiti and trying to get in here. They're still coming across the border of Mexico by the thousands. They are still uh, doing everything in their power to get to the United States of America from every nation on the face of this earth. It can't be all that bad. But anyway, be because, because things look like they're taking a turn for the worse in America, these carnal babies in the Laodicean church have begun to say, Oh no, look how bad things are. It must be that the church is going through the tribulation. Now this, this pitiful interpreting of prophecy in light of the newspaper is all that you get morning, noon, and night on your religious radio and television, these prophecy conferences and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Uh, they are occupied 99.9% .9 with the newspaper and not the Bible. I got news for you, folks. Things... Things got real bad in Russia. Millions of Christians were murdered in Russia. And that wasn't the Great Tribulation. Millions of Christians were murdered in China and Southeast Asia. That wasn't the Great Tribulation. 
millions of Christians were murdered in, in Europe by the Roman Catholic Church and are still being put to death over there in, in uh, North Ireland every time the bombs go off. And that doesn't mean we're in the Great Tribulation. We say, what does it mean? It means every nation that forgets God should be turned into hell. That's what it means. Now, this idea that the church must be going through the tribulation because the government has begun, begun to persecute some churches in the United States is nothing more than a bunch of wimps and a bunch of spiritual babies crying because everything doesn't go their way. That's all that is. Now, Daniel 9.27 shows that the whole of this last week of years has to do with Israel only, just as much as the previous 69 weeks did. The order of that great final week, of which the book of Revelation has so much to say, is given in logical sequence in the last chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah 66, matching the 66th book, of the Bible, Isaiah 66, in verse 8, speaks of the pains and travails. Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Now this will take place at the opening of the tribulation and final subsequent new birth. A national new birth, Israel's new birth, it's preceded, as is the birth of a natural baby, by the pains of travail. Now Matthew 24, verse 8, makes direct reference to those travail pains. Matthew 24, verse 8, we've already uh, told you this passage is about that great tribulation time. All these are the beginning of sorrows. These are the agonies Israel passes through during the first half of the tribulation. Matthew says, referring to the woes mentioned in the opening verses of Matthew 24, that these are only the beginning of sorrows, the beginning of the travail pains of Isaiah 66 and verse number 8. In verses 15 to 22 of Matthew 24, we find that the Great Tribulation, which according to Daniel 9 does not begin till the middle of the final years, takes place after those travail pains. And notice that these pains, representing the first half of the seven years of tribulation, are attributed in Isaiah 66 to Israel. As much as the last three and a half years are, in Matthew 24. This clearly proves that both the first three and a half years and the second three and a half years have to do with Israel. There is no evidence in Scripture that the church will be on earth at that time. In fact, she cannot be, for her time is found in that long unmentioned interval of Daniel 9, which we know now is the Christian dispensation in which we live while the church is being redeemed. Not until the church is caught up to be with Christ 
Can these other events take place? Isaiah 66, 8 then, speaks of the first half of Israel's tribulation. Verses 15 and 16 follow the revelation of his coming in wrath to execute judgment on the world. And this is turn as followed by Israel's millennial blessing, which is spoken of in verses 19 through 24. So, Isaiah 66, a composite picture of the 66th book of the Bible, and Isaiah 66 with Daniel chapter 9 proves conclusively that the entire seven years of the Great Tribulation have reference to the nation of Israel and not the New Testament church. All right, we're halfway through our study, but we're all the way through the time allotted to us on the program today, so we'll have to stop right there. Now, if you're not able to be with us for the rest of this study, or if you would like to have it to review, once again, I realize we go awfully fast on these programs, we'd be more than happy to send you this entire series on cassette recording. All you have to do is write, ask for it. We'll send it to you free of charge. No money now, no money later. This is a ministry, not a business. Our mailing address is 199 Damascus Road, D-A-M-A-S-C-U-S, 199 Damascus Road, DeLand, Florida. DeLand, Florida, the zip code number 32724. And that mailing address is in the United States of America. The announcer will be on now in just a moment to let you know when this program will be heard again over this radio station. And we hope and pray that at that time you and the friend that you invite to listen with you will join us for the Preaching of the Cross radio broadcast. Until then, I'm Brother James. May the Lord richly bless you and good day. And hello again to each and every one of you. I'm Brother James and I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And I welcome you to the Preaching of the Cross radio broadcast, the ministry of the Bible Baptist Church of DeLand, Florida, in the United States of America, and by the grace of God, reaching men and women with the truth that salvation is by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift, for his great victory that he wrought for us, for his wonderful everlasting salvation in and through the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We began a series of studies uh, two broadcasts ago. This will be the third program in a series in which we are discussing the Great Tribulation in relation to the church. And we are trying to determine from the Bible, not from our opinion, not from the belief system of our denomination, we are trying to determine from the Bible whether or not the New Testament church will be left on earth to endure the wrath of God during that seven-year time period known as the time of Jacob's trouble. We have learned from Deuteronomy 4, from Romans 11, from Jeremiah 30, from Ezekiel 20, from Daniel 12, from Matthew 24, from Mark 13, that the Great Tribulation is a time of wrath poured out upon the nation of Israel, not the New Testament church. We have learned from Daniel 9 and Romans 11 and Isaiah 66 and Matthew 24 that 
the reference to great tribulation is always given in context of the nation of Israel, never the New Testament church. Now, we, no possible way we can go back and review all of that material, and so we'll just press onward on the program today. Further proof that the church will not be on earth at the time of great tribulation is found in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read you verses 22 through 24. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming, then cometh the end when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power. Now in Daniel, in the last chapter of the book of Daniel, there is a mention of this end given five times. He shows that this end is not merely a point of time, but a period. He shows that it takes in the entirety of the Great Tribulation. When the question is raised in Daniel 12, 6, how long shall it be to the end of these things, or these wonders, or these signs, the answer comes that it shall be for a time, times, and a half. This passage from the book of Daniel is shown in the book of Revelation to refer to the time of the Great Tribulation. With this agree our Lord's words in Matthew 24, 13 through 15, where again, the end definitely has the Great Tribulation in view. 1 Corinthians 15.23 tells us very clearly that the church is removed at the rapture before the end comes. Hence, as plain as language can be made, we are told here that the church will not be on earth during the Great Tribulation. Let me give you a fourth Bible proof. The church will not be here during the tribulation because Romans 11 verses 25 to 27 says so. Let me quote that for you. I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. Now Israel, according to this portion of Scripture, shall not be taken up again. God will not begin to deal with them again as a nation until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We should note here the difference between the fullness of the Gentiles and the times of the Gentiles which latter phrase is found in Luke 21, 24. The times of the Gentiles refers to the political dominance of the Gentile nations, which began in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar when Israel ceased to be a free people. And those times of the Gentiles will continue until Christ shall reign over that people, until Israel should be the dominant and prominent nation of the world. But the fullness of the Gentiles considers the spiritual prominence of the Gentiles, as seen in God's dealings with the church in this dispensation, while Israel and her religion is set aside. And Romans 11 assures us that not until that fullness is complete, 
Not until the last soul has been saved in this dispensation of grace shall Israel again fill the scene. Now this plainly infers, therefore, that the church will have left the earth before Israel's history and her tribulation will finally unfold themselves. Now, a fifth and corroborating proof of what we've just been discussing is furnished by the fact that there is no mention of the church whatever in chapter 6 to 19 of the book of Revelation. The very period when the tribulation rages in all its fury upon the earth. And this includes the whole seven years of that tribulation time, for the seals in chapter 6 of Revelation refer to the opening events of the last seven years, as a reading of that chapter makes so clear. Even in chapter 6, the church has already been seen in heaven in the previous uh, chapters. Now, the church is the theme of Revelation 2 and 3. Then, in chapter 4, we learn of 24 elders seated upon thrones in heaven with crowns of gold upon their heads, in chapter 5, we learn that this number 24 is a symbolic number, for the elders are shown to represent all the redeemed in glory. For they sing, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Now since these redeemed saints in heaven are crowned, we know that they are not only in heaven, but have received their reward at the judgment seat of Christ, for rewards are not given until we have left this earth. Hence, chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation teach that the coming of the Lord to take his church home to heaven has occurred, and it is not until after this that the tribulation takes place on earth beginning in Revelation chapter 6. In fact, the Lord Jesus does not even break the seals, which merely usher in those awful days until after the saints are crowned in glory. Now, the church is never again referred to in the book of Revelation until chapter 19, where she is seen in heaven being united in marriage to the Lamb. And not till after the wedding does the Lord come forth to smite his enemies and reign over his own. Hence, his public coming, his appearing to execute judgment is separated from the rapture by the period of the Great Tribulation. Next, let me give you an incidental proof that the church does not pass through the Tribulation. This is seen in the fact that the Lord comes to Israel for a far different purpose than that, than that for which he comes to his church. His coming to Israel, spoken of in the New Testament as his appearing or his revelation, is to smite his and their enemies, and deliver Israel from oppression and make them his people here upon the earth. Hundreds of Old Testament scriptures mention this day of the Lord, which includes the tribulation period with its climax in his dramatic return to earth. But his coming for his church is called in the New Testament a mystery. It was not revealed in the Old Testament. Both the church and the hope of the church, that is the rapture, are said to be mysteries, and thus they have no connection with Israel as a nation. Now why, some argue, should we escape the tribulation and Israel know its horror? Well, I might with equal propriety ask, why should I escape the damnation of hell and millions perish in their sins? 
However, there is at least one answer to the question. Israel passes through the tribulation, and this is suggested frequently in the, New Te in the Old Testament, because of their awful sin in crucifying their Messiah. They said, His blood be on us and on our children, by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. God is taking them at their word. For the same reason, we, that is the saved, born-again believers in this New Testament day, we do not pass through that time of retribution because we are recipients of God's salvation, God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, rather than rejectors of his Son. Now what makes it so terrible is that this tribulation comes upon Israel and the world by the hand of God. It is punishment for their sins. The believer, the Christian, all through the ages has suffered tribulation. But this is not for his sins, but for the sins of others. Not at the hand of God, but at Satan's hand. Revelation 2.10 says so in so many words that uh, that's the mighty difference, you see, between tribulation, of which every believer knows more or less, and the tribulation, which only will affect Israel and the apostate church, after the true church has been caught up to glory. Now, a seventh proof that the church will be absent during this time of tribulation is that Israel's tribulation, as we've just stated, is largely due to their rejection of Jesus Christ. The prophet Zechariah, in fairly regular order, presents Israel's future. In chapter 9, verse 9, he refers to the Lord's entry into Jerusalem as he rode upon the colt just one week prior to his death. In chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, he makes mention of Judas' act in selling his master for 30 pieces of silver. In chapter 12, verse 10, we're carried forward to the future day when Israel shall look upon him whom they pierced and shall mourn for him. John, in the first chapter of Revelation, alludes to this in verse 7, saying, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. They shall then recognize that the one they rejected and crucified was indeed their Messiah and King. Then Zechariah hearkens back to the death of our Lord and mentions the subsequent scattering of Israel among all the nations of the world. That's in chapter 13, verse 7. But God will bring a third part of them through the fire. Chapter 13, verse 9, which is none other than the fiery trial of the great tribulation. This mentioned in direct connection with their crucifixion of Christ, suggests that their tribulation is God's dealing with them in judgment because of that fearful crime. And finally, chapter 14, verses 2 through 5, references made to Christ's second coming when his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Jerusalem shall then be delivered, and Christ shall reign as king over all the earth. That's chapter 14, verse 9. And since all this has only Israel in view, the plain inference is that the church is not here during this tribulation time. Number eight, 
The church does not pass through the tribulation because many signs are given, both in the Old and New Testaments, to precede the coming of Christ at his appearing, but no signs are suggested anywhere to usher in the rapture of the saints. And the apostle was instructed to write in 1 Corinthians 1.22 that the Jews require a sign. In fact, looking for signs is in itself a sign of unbelief. That's what Jesus said, except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The church's path is one entirely of faith, including faith in the hope of his return. No signs are given to herald Christ's coming for his church. Indeed, the very opposite is stressed. For example, in Luke 21, verses 27 and 28, we read, And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up, lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. That is, the Jews were told they could know their redemption was near when they saw certain things. But now, in Romans 8, verses 23 to 25, the Bible says to the New Testament church, not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Now, no language could be stronger. No contrast could be more striking. Israel looks to see things the church, by faith and not by sight, waits for him. All signs in Scripture have to do with Israel or the world, none with the church. Now, the danger in looking for and looking at signs is that the eye is taken off the Lord to be fastened on things. Satan loves that well enough, that's for sure. One begins to look for signs instead of for the Savior. One begins looking around instead of looking up. And as a consequence, heavenly mindedness becomes a lost art because, well, it's impossible to be looking at the mess this world is in without becoming depressed. But a look at Jesus Christ, waiting to see his lovely face at any moment, this fills the heart with longing and a deep inward peace and joy. Signs shall introduce the coming of the Lord in judgment. And there are many of them. Read Matthew 24, you'll see numbers of them there. If the church were to pass through the tribulation, it would be impossible for the believer to look for the coming of his Lord. In that case, Christ could not have come for the church till those signs had appeared, and he could not have come until after the Antichrist had appeared. In that case, the church would have started to look for the Antichrist instead of for the Christ, which, alas, is what so many believers actually have been and are doing. Many have made fools of themselves in doing so. What amazing and foolish prophecies have been made because of this fundamental error. You ought to see some of the books I've got in my library. Why the German Emperor 
he was the Antichrist, and then Napoleon was the Antichrist, and Mussolini was the Antichrist, and Hitler was the Antichrist, and uh, Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist, and uh, Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist, and on and on and on it goes. All such humbling and jumbling sadness could have been avoided if the church had only realized that Christ will appear before Antichrist, to catch away his own, and if the church were looking for Jesus Christ instead of the false Christ, they would never have fallen into so many foolish and hurtful snares. All right, number nine. You don't even have to play the tape backwards to understand that. Number nine. <laughs> A couple of you get that. Uh, the Antichrist cannot come till Christ has come, at which coming he will take his church home to heaven. Now let's read Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8, and see if this is indeed what the Bible teaches. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you I told you these things? And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now I feel sure that most Bible students agree that the one who sits in the temple of God claiming to be God is none other than the Antichrist. This is the abomination of desolation spoken uh, by Daniel the prophet. This Antichrist cannot be revealed while one is here to hinder his manifestation. Having considered other interpretations on this portion, it still remains clear that there is only one person strong enough to hinder the awful development of the full-blown apostasy described here. That one is the Lord Jesus Christ, God. His body, the church, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, of whom Jesus said the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This body of Christ must first be taken out of the way before Antichrist can come, and this calls for the removal of the church, taken home by her Lord at the rapture. Hence the tribulation cannot begin until after the blessed hope has become a blessed reality. Number 10. The church cannot pass through the tribulation because the blessed hope is always presented as an immediately possible event. This is clearly demonstrated in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. In verses 16 and 17 we read that the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord of the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now this scripture shows that the Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit had been taught that the Lord might come even in his lifetime. He does not say, if they which are alive and remain, but 
we. Now, when speaking in the next chapter of the coming of Christ in judgment, he changes from we to they and to them. He says, for when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, and they shall not escape. He clearly states thus that he would not be on earth at Christ's appearing, but might be at the rapture. All other verses dealing with the blessed hope speak in like manner. Nowhere is there any hint of things having to happen before the Lord comes for his own. Number 11. I think we've got time for one more on the broadcast today. The church will not experience the great tribulation because Revelation 3.10 says so outright. Addressing the church in Philadelphia, our blessed Lord says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. This passage alone, were there no other, would prove that the church of God will not only pass through the tribulation, not pass through the tribulation, but will not be in the world when it occurs. The language is careful, and the language is explicit. It does not say that we should be kept from the tribulation, but from the hour of the tribulation. We shall be kept out of it altogether. Now the reference here is definitely to what we call the Great Tribulation because it is said to come on all the world. Our Savior said the same thing in regard to the Great Tribulation. And of course it is a matter of history that never since these words were written has any affliction come that affects the entire world. It is stated here that this temptation shall come upon all that dwell upon the earth. This again excludes the church, for it is never said of believers that they dwell on the earth. Never. We are, once you're saved, the Bible says you're seated with Christ in, in heavenly places. This term earth dwellers is found ten times in the book of Revelation, and according to chapter 13 and verse 8 refers to religious apostates that worship the beast, never to true believers. The term has reference, therefore, to the tribulation period out of which this Bible verse says the New Testament church, the body of Christ, is to be kept. Now, my friends, those are 11 reasons, and we've got several more to give you on the next broadcast. And it's unfortunate that we're not able to give you this entire study at one time, but we're only able to purchase uh, so much airtime, uh, and then we've got to go off the air and let somebody else come along. But if you'd like to have this entire study, two cassette tape recordings, four radio broadcasts, on the tribulation in relation to the church, we would like very much for you to have it. All you need to do is write and request it, We'd appreciate so much when you write if you'd send along a letter of testimony to let us know what radio station you listen on. But uh, if you'll write and request this study on the church or the tribulation in relation to the church, we'd be happy to send it to you. 
Our mailing address is 199 Damascus Road, D-A-M-A-S-C-U-S, 199 Damascus Road. That's in Deland, and it's spelled just like it sounds, D-E-L-A-N-D, Deland, Florida. The zip code number is 32724, and if you're listening overseas, that mailing address is in the United States of America. Now, this program is heard at different times on different radio stations, and we'll trust the announcer to come on in just a moment now and let you know when this program will be heard again over this radio station. And we hope and pray that at that time, you and the friend that you invite to listen with you will join us for the Preaching of the Cross radio broadcast. Until then, I'm Brother James. May the Lord richly bless you, and good day. And a very pleasant good day to each and every one of you. I'm Brother James. I greet you once again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And I welcome you once again to the Preaching of the Cross radio broadcast. You know, isn't it wonderful to know that whoever you are, wherever you are in this world, that you can be saved by the grace of God through the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but that Christ died for sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that certainly is the wonderful good news of the Bible, that whosoever will may come and be saved with eternal everlasting life, the gift of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're going to conclude, uh, God willing, we're going to conclude a uh, series today that we began uh, three broadcasts ago. This will be the fourth message in a series on the Great Tribulation in relation to the church. We showed you, first of all, that uh, one must note the distinction between the New Testament church and the nation of Israel to ever hope to understand the Bible. And then we have been discussing with you, uh, already having given you 11 proofs from the Word of God, not from my opinion, not from our denominational creed, but 11 proofs from the Word of God why the church will be taken out of this world before that dreadful time known as the Great Tribulation. Now, reason number 12, and we can't possibly go back and review all of these matters. We'll just have to allow uh, you at the close of the broadcast to get our address and write for the remainder of this study. We can't review all the material. The twelfth reason why the church will not be here during the Tribulation is because that we are told that Jesus will deliver us from the wrath to come in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse number 10. Now there are many passages in the Old Testament that designate the tribulation as the outpouring of God's wrath. For example, Isaiah 13, 9, Behold, the day cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Zephaniah 1.18, Zephaniah 3.8, or other verses in point. And since the book of Revelation unfolds the details of this tribulation, it is consistent to find much there about the outpouring of that wrath. As in chapter 6, verse 16, where we read of the awful wrath of the Lamb. Ten times in Revelation we hear of this wrath of God. Now, keeping this in mind, it is surely most significant that the believers of this age are repeatedly told that they shall not taste this wrath. Yea, they shall not be on earth when it 
breaks loose. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 state, Ye turn to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who shall deliver us from the wrath to come. Now since at his coming he takes us up to heaven, the scripture plainly avers that in so doing he delivers us from the wrath to come, which wrath revelation shows to be the tribulation judgments. Hence, the church shall not be on earth during the tribulation. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, the apostle describes the forthcoming day of the Lord, which includes the great tribulation, and then in verse 9 positively asserts that God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hence here also we clearly see that we shall not be here when God's wrath smites this world. By then we shall have received our salvation, which, as many scriptures show, includes our glorified bodies, which we receive at the rapture. Now, the same truth is conveyed in Romans 5, verses 8 through 10. And this is a wonderful passage because it pre presents the threefold nature of biblical salvation. In these verses we read, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life. Verse 8 deals with the past, when Christ died for us. Verse, present, uh, or verse 10 deals with the present, the now, as Christ lives for us as our great high priest. And verse 9 speaks of the future, when the wrath of God deluges this world, but we shall be saved from wrath through him, which is exactly what the apostle said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse number 10. Isn't it highly significant that uh, while both the Old and New Testament, or, or both the Old Testament and the book of Revelation, I should say, stress so much outpouring of the wrath of God, the New Testament epistles, with one voice, declare that the believer shall have been taken up to glory before. There's only one conclusion. The church has been raptured before the wrath breaks forth, and shall be above the storm in the sunlight of his glorious presence in heaven when the wrath breaks upon this earth. Number 13, Israel and the Gentile, that is the heathen nations, pass through the tribulation to be blessed at its close, as seen in Revelation chapter 7. Now this proves the church will not be on earth. For in this day of grace, the Jew and the Gentile are merged by the cross into one body. In the first part of Revelation 7, we read of 144,000 sealed, and are informed that they are Jews, 12,000 out of every tribe. The Old Testament says much of this remnant that shall be saved and inherit the earth uh, under the reign of Christ. But those... 
those who compose the vast multitude of the second part of Revelation 7 are an entirely different group. One of the elders even asked John about this. John confessed ignorance. Then the, the angel answered and said, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Now, these are clearly not the heavenly saints, for the elder was one of those. See Revelation 4, 4, Revelation 5, 8. And yet he knew not who these were. They therefore are earthly saints, which is proven by a study of the context. It's said that they serve God day and night in his temple. This proves they are on earth, for Revelation 21 shows there is no temple in heaven, and they couldn't serve him day and night in heaven, for there's no night there. The chapter closes by saying that the Lamb shall feed and lead them, which surely can't be in heaven, where neither of these are needed. Now the fact that they are mentioned in distinction from the Jews argues that they do not represent the church, for there Jew and Gentile are merged, as we've already discussed. Thus they are believers from among the Gentile nations, as verse 9 says. It is worth noticing here that when speaking of the church in glory, in Revelation 5, 9, the Bible says that those saints are redeemed out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation, while these in Revelation 7 are of all nations. That's chapter 7, verse 9. Now, in short, these believers are still members of their respective nations, which again proves that they are not in heaven, for nationalism does not exist up there. These Gentile believers have passed through the Great Tribulation, verse 14. They are saved and blessed on the earth, of which John has shown a preview. There is no difficulty in identifying them, for numberless passages in the Old Testament speak of many Gentiles to be blessed with Israel here upon the earth. You can read Isaiah 60, 1-3, Isaiah 49, Deuteronomy 32, 43, which, by the way, is quoted in Romans 15, 10. Both Old and New Testament scriptures show that these Gentile converts are one to God through the witnessing of the Jewish people during the tribulation woes. Matthew 24, 14 and Isaiah 66, 19 are but samples. The story of the judgment of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25 details the judgment the Lord will pronounce over those nations who shall be gathered before Christ the King at the close of the tribulation. These saints of Revelation 7 are the sheep of Matthew 25, 33 to 34. Now one thing to a careful student is crystal clear. That is that the church is not on earth during this tribulation. For Jews and Gentiles shall not be dealt with separately as long as the church has the gospel of the grace of God committed to her charge. Number 14, the church cannot pass through the tribulation simply because there must be an interval between the blessed hope and Christ's appearing. We've shown that the rapture does precede his appearing. Secondly, it must precede it by a considerable lapse of time. 
that precedes the appearing is clear because it is symbolized in the rising of the morning star. Revelation 22.16, the appearing of the rising of the sun, Malachi 4.2 symbolizing the second coming of Christ. The morning star rises long before the sun does, of course. Again in Luke 12.38, Jesus said that it might come in the second or in the third watch at the latest. While in Matthew 14.25, he came to his Jewish disciples in the fourth watch of the night. Now, the third watch, according to Mark 13.35, was a cock crowing, which answers in time of day to the rising of the morning star, which is given as the hope of the church. But Matthew speaks of his coming to Israel as being in the fourth watch, which answers to the rising of the sun. Now, it's clear, therefore, that there is a space of time between these two comings. They cannot take place at the same time as some so erroneously claim. Colossians 3, 4 says that when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we also appear with him in glory. Now, it's evident that we cannot come with Christ unless he first come for us. So also in Revelation 19, we see the heavenly bride in glory being united to her Lord in marriage. And this happens before he comes forth to judge the world, as the latter part of Revelation chapter 19 portrays. It but remains to prove there must be a length of time of some years between these two phases of our Lord's coming. They cannot take place simultaneously, for that would pose an insoluble dilemma. For remember that at the rapture our Lord takes out all his saints, both those who have died and those alive at the time of his coming. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-17 clearly teaches. Now, by taking all believers out of the world at the rapture, only the unsaved, of course, would be left here on earth. Now, if the rapture and the appearing followed upon one another immediately, as some are so foolish as to believe, where do the millions of saints come from which Christ finds on earth at his second coming? For that he does find many saints here is clearly shown Many, many places in the Bible. For instance, Matthew 13, 49, So shall it be at the end of the age, end of the world. At the end of the world, the angels, not Christ himself, the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from, from the just and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There just has to be a long interval between the rapture of the saints and his appearing to account for the saints Christ finds on earth at his appearing. And, of course, Scripture clearly accounts for such an interval. Romans 11 shows us that when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then Israel shall turn to the Lord. Out of Zion shall come the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. This was God's covenant with them, made with their fathers, and promising them they would never cease to be his earthly people. These converted Jews, after the church has been removed at the rapture, will go forth to preach the gospel to all nations, as Matthew 24, 14 declares. The results of this preaching are seen in the judgment of the sheep and the goats of Matthew 25, 31 to 46, already mentioned. They are also seen in Matthew 13, 47 through 50, where the good are gathered into vessels and the bad cast away. 
Thus it is plain that there is a space of time between the rapture and the appearing, and it is occupied with the horrors and sufferings of the tribulation time, the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom by the Jews to all lands, and the subsequent ingathering of myriads of Gentile converts who shall be blessed with Israel in Christ's earthly millennial reign. To give the scripture verses for all this would be impossible in the time that we've got on this broadcast. But it's so clear, so crystal clear from those 14 reasons, biblical reasons, that the church will not be present during the time of great tribulation. Now, as we said when we started this study, wrong conceptions on this subject are due chiefly to the failure to distinguish between Israel and the church. Let me give you a couple of examples. The first one. Because in Matthew 24, 31, the Lord at his coming gathers his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other, it is taken for granted that these elect here mentioned are the believers of the present age, because such are spoken of in the New Testament as God's elect in Romans 8, 33. Now, it needs to be remembered that Israel was called God's elect people long before this was recorded of the church. Speaking of the future ingathering to their land, in Isaiah 65 and verse 11, we read of Israel as God's elect. He said, I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah, inherited my mountains, and mine elect shall inherit it and my servants shall dwell there. I hope I, I quoted that right. Let me turn and look, make sure. We don't want don't to mislead you. Isaiah 65, verse 9. I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains, and mine elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. It is this very return to their land that is in view in Matthew 24. In Isaiah 45, 4, Israel is definitely called God's elect. And as we noted earlier in our study, at the rapture, the Lord himself comes. While in connection with his appearing to Israel, he gathers them by his angels. So, the elect of Matthew 24 is clearly Israel and not the church. Secondly, Another passage some use to prove that the church will pass through the tribulation is Luke 17, verses 26 through 30. Luke 17, verses 26 through 30. And let's read that together. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded, but the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven, and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now it's argued that Noah and Lot are types of believers of the church passing through the time of destruction known as the tribulation. But the very use of the title Son of Man ought to warn against that interpretation. 
for it is a title never employed in connection with the church. Indeed, it never occurs at all in the New Testament epistles. It is Christ's title as universal Lord when he reigns supreme. And this cannot be until after he has caught us up to glory. Now, Noah passing through the flood is a type of this world passing through the great tribulation deluge, a type of those who pass through it alive and will inherit the new earth. Neither Noah nor Lot were taken up to heaven, but remained here upon the earth. So how could they possibly be types of the church? For such a type we must look to Enoch, who walked with God and was taken home to heaven before the flood came, as, praise God, all true Christians will be. So, let's begin to wrap up this matter. Let's begin to, to wind down to the close of our study. The blessed hope is just that. It takes no account of the awful storm of wrath that shall burst over this world in the Great Tribulation, but it is full of comfort and challenge to the church which he purchased with his own blood. It holds the never-failing thrill of the possibility of his immediate return. It is the divine cure for heart trouble. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. It is the prescription for permanent joy. John 16:22. And now, therefore, you now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again. And your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. It is the incentive to remember him in the breaking of bread. 1 Corinthians 11:26. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Not only that, but it stimulates, this blessed hope stimulates to earnest, patient service for Christ. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, Be ye therefore steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It holds out the bright prospect of absolute conformity to Christ, spirit, soul, and body. Philippians 3, 20-21, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. This blessed hope is our deliverance from divine wrath poured out on this world. In 1 Thessalonians 1:10, We wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Even Jesus shall deliver us from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians 4, verse 16 through 18, tell us it's a source of, of deepest comfort. The Bible says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Our blessed hope teaches the believer to live a Christ-honoring life. In Titus 2, verses 11 to 13, 
the Bible declares, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the blessed hope induces pure, holy living. In 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Do you believe, my friend, that Jesus Christ could come today? If not, your belief is not a biblical belief. Your faith is not a scriptural faith. The blessed hope that Jesus Christ left for his New Testament church, the blessed hope that the scriptures hold forth to all those who have put their faith and trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ is that soon, soon, Jesus Christ himself will descend from heaven. And soon and very soon, those who have been washed in his precious blood will ascend from the earth. And there is going to be a meeting in the air in the sweet, sweet by and by. We'll be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Yes, there'll be the judgment seat of Christ. Yes, our works shall there be tried to determine our rewards in his kingdom. But then we'll come with him as he returns in power and great glory to the earth to punish his enemies, to establish his throne, to judge all nations, and to rule for 1,000 years as we enjoy together with him that blessed marriage supper of the Lamb. My friend, do you know this Lord Jesus Christ? Have you ever been born again? Have you ever been washed in his precious blood? If not, you'll never see him. You'll never go to be with him when he comes for his own. May I ask you to put your faith, your trust, not in any works of righteousness which you have done, but in the finished, the finished salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he purchased for his church. All right, this concludes our study on the Great Tribulation in relation to the church. If you'd like to have a copy of this two-tape set, we'd like for you to have it. All you need to do is write and request it. Our mailing address 199 Damascus Road, D-Land, Florida, 32724. I'll give it to you again. 199 Damascus Road, D-Land, Florida, 32724. That mailing address is in the United States of America. Now, the announcer will be on in just a moment to let you know when this program will be heard again over this radio station. And we hope and pray that at that time you... And a friend that you invite to listen with you will join us for the Preaching of the Cross radio broadcast. Until then, I'm Brother James. May the Lord richly bless you, and good day.